0: Hello listeners everywhere, Nestor and I hope everyone out there is doing well during this very difficult time and want to invite you to our upcoming online show on July 28th where you can connect with us and our storytellers. Please visit our Facebook page, 80 Minutes Around the World, Immigration Stories or com for more information. And now, here's another episode.
1: From the 80 Minutes Around the World, Immigration Stories, a storytelling show. This is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez.
0: Stories and conversations with immigrants, refugees, second, third generations, and allies, where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and
1: Nestor Gomez.
0: In a 5-4 decision on June 18, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected President Trump's attempt to end the DACA program. Since its establishment in 2012 under President Obama, DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, currently protects about 700,000 young immigrants known as DREAMers brought to the United States as children, allowing them to work legally while shielding them from deportation. This next story gives voice to undocumented immigrants in the United States who live in fear every day. Fear of deportation and return to a country they know little of. Here is best-selling author Julissa Arce reading an excerpt from her first book, My Underground American Dream. I wasn't making the big bucks. Not yet, I thought. Still... As I sat there
2: surrounded by unpacked boxes, drinking my ice-cold beer, and watching TV on a humid July night, I thought about just how lucky I truly was. In two weeks, I'll be on my way. I was sitting with Robert, my on-again, off-again, maybe boyfriend, in his new apartment at 45 Wall Street in the heart of a reborn Lower Manhattan. It was a gorgeous night in that promising summer of 2005. We'd both landed big city jobs and rented apartments in the same building on one of the most famous streets in the world. So what if we'd driven all the way from San Antonio in a Penske truck to save money on airfare? So what if Robert's roommate wound up making the drive with us at the last minute, the three of us all squished together and sweaty on a black vinyl bench seat, erasing all my romantic road trip dreams? So what if I was slightly annoyed that Mr. Third Wheel was cramping our space in that apartment in that moment, too? We were there. We were on our way. I was just about to say something about how lucky we all were when I felt a sharp pain in my chest. I suddenly felt like I couldn't breathe. A tingling feeling crept down my left arm. I tried to convince myself that it was some sort of head freeze. Maybe the beer was too cold or I'd pounded it too fast. After a few minutes of silent agony, though, my palms started sweating and the pain in my chest became searing. Guys, I said, it was difficult to speak. I could barely gather enough air to make the words. I think I might be having a heart attack. (laughs) What? Robert said with a little laugh. Get out of here. No, really, my chest hurts and my left arm so tingly. I was 22. I couldn't possibly be having a heart attack. It'll pass, they said, and I wanted to believe them. But I felt like I was dying, actually dying. The room closed in on me. Sweat started pouring out of every pore. I tried to breathe slowly and control the pounding of my heart, but I couldn't. I really think I need to go to the hospital, I said. I couldn't call 911. I was too afraid to call any government number, and Robert was about the only person who knew the reason why. He looked into my eyes and finally seemed to get it. Okay, he said, let's go. It was late. Wall Street was dead. Miraculously, a cab appeared. We told the driver to take us to the closest hospital, which was NYU downtown on William Street. It was less than half a mile away, but getting there felt like an eternity. I saw the buildings arcing in on top of us the entire drive, as if we were passing through a giant tunnel in slow motion. Everything's going to be okay, Robert said. But I could see he was worried now, too. At the hospital, I handed over my student ID and insurance card from the University of Texas at Austin. I had graduated in May, and I was pretty sure the insurance had expired. But that is all I had. I was sure I was about to collapse in full cardiac arrest on the hard industrial floor of that ER and suffer the embarrassment of making a scene in front of Robert. Somehow, I was more worried about making a fool of myself in front of him than I was about possibly dying. The person at the desk took one look at me, wrote down information, and didn't ask any questions. The nurses hurried me in and hooked me up to a dozen monitors. One of them handed me an aspirin to dissolve under my tongue while another drew blood and began a long list of routine questions. Are you on any medicine? No. Any chance of you being pregnant? No. Robert looked at me. You don't want to take a pregnancy test just to be sure, he asked. I shook my head emphatically. No. When the nurses left, I shot him the side-eye. What the hell, Robert, I said, my voice muffled by a plastic oxygen mask. Why would you say that? Well, what if you are? How can I be pregnant, Robert? We aren't even having sex. If I wasn't already painfully aware of how complicated our relationship was, He made it clear to me in that moment. I should dump him, I thought. But how could I? He was there in the hospital with me in the middle of the night. We didn't talk much after that. I lay there for hours with doctors and nurses coming in and out until finally one doctor came in and told me that he had some good news. I wasn't having a heart attack at all. What you've experienced is a major panic or anxiety attack, he said. I was confused. I wasn't the type of person to panic. I wasn't someone filled with anxiety. There were types of people I associated with panic attacks, and I certainly was not one of them. What could cause that to happen, I asked, because it doesn't make any sense that I would have one. Sometimes they just happen, the doctor told me. He said I would be discharged shortly and left the room. I hated that answer. I hated uncertainty. I've always hated uncertainty. I like facts. That is why I've always loved math. There's no ambiguity in math. If he told me that I'd had a heart attack and needed surgery, it would have been better than walking away without a concrete answer. Sometimes they just happen made absolutely no sense to me. It was early in the morning by the time they discharged me, and I didn't express any of my worry and confusion to Robert as we walked out of the front door. I was too embarrassed, and we were both too tired to speak. The old streets of downtown New York are particularly beautiful in the early morning before the crowds and the cars take over. The edges of the cobblestones were just catching flickers of orange light from the rising sun as it poked its head up between the buildings— and I could hear Bert's chippering in that rare Manhattan choir as we made the walk back to our shared building. There was plenty of noise in my head, though. Why on earth would I have a panic attack? We were almost back when it finally dawned on me. In less than two weeks, there was more than a good chance my secret would finally be exposed. The secret that could ruin my life, that could send me to jail, that could end my career before it ever began the secret I'd been forced to keep since I was 14 years old. In less than two weeks, I would report to work and be fingerprinted for a building ID. I would have to show two forms of government-issued ID to start on payroll. I had already passed a background check, miraculously. There would be more background checks, this time from government agencies to obtain my various financial licenses. It was all standard protocol. To anyone else, that stuff might have been no big deal. The big deal would have been that they were starting their dream job at Goldman Sachs. To me, it was a big deal in a different way. I was two weeks away from walking into Goldman Sachs' New York headquarters to start my coveted career as a financial analyst. And I'd been so focused on the details of the move and trying to figure out this whole Robert situation that I hadn't stopped to consider the possibility that I might never make it past day one. Since the age of 14, I had learned to live in an alternate reality, an imagined one, in which my immigration status didn't matter. Denial had become the only way I could move through life. But on that day, everything I had pushed down inside of me, the potential consequences of my secret, came rushing to the surface without warning. The reality of my situation was suddenly undeniable. Everything I'd done my entire life, every accomplishment, every dream could disappear the moment I walked in through those
0: doors. Here's Yulisa and Nestor sharing Yulisa's story as an undocumented immigrant in the U.S. and her work as an immigrant rights advocate.
2: I was born in Mexico in a small town called Tasco Guerrero, which is three hours south of Mexico City. It's a really beautiful place with white houses and cobblestone streets and a cathedral that I love to tell people was built 200 years before the U.S. was even a country. And that's where I'm from. I came to the U.S. when I was 11 years old because my parents already lived in the U.S. And for eight years... I would only see them when they came, when they would come visit me in Mexico. Um, But when I came to the US at the age of 11, I didn't know how to speak English. And that was one of the toughest things to go through, especially when you're a child and you're trying to make friends, but kids are mean and they make fun of your accent and your hair and your food and everything else in between. Um, But by the time I was 14, I had learned how to speak English pretty well, I was making friends, I was starting to view the US as my home, but that's when my mom told me that the visa that I used to come to the US had expired, and so I had become one of the millions of undocumented people in the US. And finding out that I was undocumented, um, the way that I found out is because I wanted to go to Tasco to have my quinceanera. And I had dreamt of the day that I would be twirling around in a beautiful pink dress and um, da- and to dance el waltz with, with my dad and my chambelanes. And that day never came because my mom said, you can't go to Mexico because if you go to Mexico, you can't come back because my visa had expired. I was 14 at the time, and I don't think either me or my parents realized what being undocumented would mean for my future But I started to really quickly figure out that being undocumented was a secret that I couldn't tell anyone about because things were different back then. And I didn't tell anyone that I was undocumented. But the first time that I realized there were real consequences to it was when I was applying to go to college. And every college that I applied to rejected me because I didn't have a nine-digit social security number. Eventually, I was able to go to the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns, and uh, I went to college, and I graduated from college, and made my way to um, Wall Street, and I worked at Goldman Sachs for um, almost seven years, and I became vice president there, and then I uh, went to work at Merrill Lynch where I was a director and then I realized that I had a powerful story to tell that I wanted to share with people so that I could at the very least share one truthful real life experience of what it's like to be an undocumented immigrant in this country, why we come to this country and the difficulties we encounter and so that's when I decided to leave my job and become a writer, become an activist, and start my scholarship fund.
1: And from that decision to become a writer, uh, a book was born from that decision. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that book?
2: Yeah, I my first book is called My Underground American Dream. It came out in 2016. And um, it's funny because I... I used to write a lot in my journals. That was the only place where I could be totally honest about not only what I was feeling, but also what I was experiencing. Because I couldn't tell anyone why I did certain things, right? Like, I couldn't tell people why I could never get a driver's license when I was 16. I couldn't tell my friends why I couldn't go on vacation with them on spring break to Mexico. Um, But in my writing, I could be honest. And... One time, um, shortly after my dad passed away, I wrote in my journal, one day all of this beep, beep, beep (laughs) (laughs) is going to be for something. It's going to mean something. And um, I said, one day I'm going to write a book. And in that journal entry, I had written all of the chapters that my book was about, would would be about. And that was like 10 years before... I actually wrote the book, Um, but I always knew that I wanted to write a book and that I wanted to share my experiences. And, um, you know, in in my underground American dream, I talk about um, a lot of the fear that I felt, but I also talk about a lot of the things that I experienced as a young woman working on Wall Street, some of the heartbreak, um, the terrible boyfriends I dated Uh, because I didn't want it all to be about the pain. Like, I also wanted it to be about the joy that we're able to experience even when we're going through those tough things.
1: After you wrote the book, you wrote now the second book.
2: Yeah. Um, So the second book is called Someone Like Me, and um, it is a young adult adaptation of my first book. So it's specifically written with young readers in mind. But there is about half of the book that is new uh, and it's almost like a prelogue. So it's actually uh, all the things that took place before I came to live in the U.S. Um, Because in my underground American dream, I really wanted to focus on my life in the U.S. and my experience working on Wall Street as an undocumented immigrant, where someone like me, I really wanted to show a different kind of family separation because I lived in Mexico and my parents lived in the US and we were still separated by this border even though they could come visit me, but they could only come every once in a while. Uh, I could only come visit them every once in a while. And I also really wanted to show that I had a life before I came to live in the US because I think a lot of people think that, and for some, you know, for some, for some, young undocumented people, it is true that the U.S. is the only home they've known because they came here when they were babies or months old. But I came here when I was 11. And so I had 11 years of my life that I lived in my beautiful hometown of Tasco. And I really wanted to share those stories um, and also to make, them, to make those stories more relevant to a young adult, to a fifth or sixth grader that is reading this book that maybe like me, has never read a story about an undocumented person. Uh, you know, as a, a, as a young Latina, when I was growing up in school, I never read any books that had a Latina protagonist or that had Latino characters in them even. Um, and that's why I really wanted to write the second book was so that people like young kids in school could see themselves reflected in the books they read in school. Now, I know the
1: answer to this question before I ask you, so I'm going to ask you because for those that are listening and don't know the answer or don't have any idea why, why do you need to tell your story? Why are the stories of somebody who's undocumented or a person of color so important?
2: Hmm, yeah. Um, Well, I think that I I shared my story for two reasons. One, um, because there's so much disinformation about who undocumented people are and i think it's so important that we tell our own stories that we're able to share our real life experiences told through our own vantage point not told through somebody else's lens where it just loses all its flavor um or it gets piled up with stereotypes and tropes and drama um, for the purposes of making the story interesting. And so I wanted to share my story because I wanted to set the record straight, at least from my perspective, right, my real life story. But I think the other reason why, um, I also have felt a really big sense of relief when I've shared my story because it was a secret I carried in me for such a long time. And I think that the more we tell our stories the more people will know that we're here and that we've always been here and that our stories are important because i think part of the part of the part of the the sort of like lack of equity in the publishing world for example is that Not everybody's stories get treated the same. Not everybody's stories get treated with the same kind of excitement and respect. And I think the more we share our stories, the more we'll be able to change that.
1: And like you say, it's so important to see somebody of color or somebody who lived the same experience that you did. um, And to be able to hear the stories. I remember when I was in high school, I never... Never heard the stories of a documented, and it, I wasn't undocumented too, and it was something that we couldn't talk about. I remember my my class went to Washington D.C. on a field trip, and there was like about ten of us that didn't go, and we were all like, "Oh, I don't have papers." I don't. That was the reason why we mm. couldn't go. Everybody else went, went on from Chicago to Washington D.C. on a field trip, and all of all of us that weren't documented, we just stayed there for like a whole week. Um, so it's important that this generation gets to hear the stories and yeah. get to hear that. And I I'm so in love with the fact that you that you care so much about the the uh, our youngsters you care so much uh, about the fact that you couldn't get a scholarship that you yeah. now provide a scholarship for those that don't have any other means to get a scholarship.
2: Yeah. Thanks. I'll tell you about that. But I wanted I wanted to share with you that um the, the other thing that I think is really important about sharing our stories is that it makes us feel less alone, right? Like, I remember when I heard your story, uh, I listened to your story, and I want to <laughs> cry all over again. Because, like, when you were talking about um, language, right, and how it's something, like, you know, people people tell us like learn how to speak English, and it's like, mm-hmm. duh! Like, of course we want to learn. You know, we don't we don't not learn because we don't want to. Like, it's really hard to learn another language, and so many times, our parents don't have the resources or the time because they're giving everything to us, and so we learn. But then that language then becomes a barrier to like our own family. Yes. And I just remember listening to you, and like, for the, I hadn't been able to express that in the way that you did and when I listened to it I was really able to put it into words right and to and to say oh yeah that is what I felt like that that's how I was feeling too um, and I think that's what's really important is that if like one person can feel less alone because somebody else lived their experience that's just like the most one of the most amazing things I think about storytelling so thank you for sharing well, your story thank
1: you so much for, uh, for saying that you, uh, you almost made me cry now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that Through my story, I was able to make a connection with you. And through your writing, you have made a connection with me because (laughs) I'm a fan of your work. You have a presentation today at the American Writers' Museum, which is uh, highlighting the work of immigrant writers, which is so important.
2: It is really important. I just went to that exhibit, and it's really amazing. Um, It's really unbelievable. And I was so happy to see so many of my friends being part of the exhibit, like so many of my writer friends. I was like, yes, I'm so glad they're here too. (laughs) Um, You were asking about the scholarship fund. I uh, I started the scholarship fund with some friends in New York. Uh, In 2013, we awarded our first scholarships. And um, this last year, we are close to awarding almost half a million dollars in college scholarships in the six um, almost seven years that we've been that we've been around and it honestly it's like one of the best things that I've ever done in my life because I know how hard it is to find financial aid to go to college, especially when you're undocumented. And so the scholarship fund is called the Ascent Educational Fund. We are open to New York City high school students who, were born outside of the US or who have two parents that were born outside of the US regardless of their immigration status or their ethnicity or their national origin. So um of the 64 students that we've helped go to college, about a third are Latino, about a third are Asian, uh and about a third um are African. And so and and you know th- that, that just happened because the diversity that already exists in New York City, right? And so it's like those are the people that are applying to our scholarships. And um, we're really, really proud of the fact that um, this year we were recognized as one of the top five scholarships in New York State um, because I think we make such a big investment in our students. Not only, you know, our average award is around $10,000, and then we pair each of our students with a mentor, to help them navigate um, because many of them are first generation college students, and there's so many challenges as a first generation college student, even if you take away the part of being undocumented, even if you are were born in the u s but you're the first one in your family to go to college, there's a lot of challenges and so um, every year I'm just so grateful to meet these students because they have incredible resiliency and incredible perseverance and they're so smart. And I think, oh, my God, I could never go to college now because <laughs> I'm just like, how did I make it to college? These kids are so smart. Um, but it's really awesome every year when we get to do it.
1: You got 64 recipients. Wow. 64. 64. I mean, it's, it's easily said, but.
2: <sighs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and,
1: and I can only imagine uh, the difference that you have made in the life of these 64 kids. Like, Thank you. Like. I didn't go to college myself, <laughs> 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 but uh, my reasons were well, I wasn't documented. But it wasn't just because I wasn't documented. I I just like I got my girlfriend pregnant, really, and then, phew, my life went another way. Uh, <laughs> but but yes, just um, just to think back on the times, you know, when I was in high school. What well, one of the reasons why I got into a relationship was as well because I knew that there was no way for mm-hmm. me to go to college. I'm like, yeah, what's left? Like uh, really, just. Yes. Yeah. Life has to continue.
2: But I think that's that's you know I think that what you just said is like really another reason why stories are so important right because sometimes it's really hard to imagine ourselves in different positions where we've never seen someone that looks like us that talks like us that has a background like ours being in those positions right and so um part of it is also uh like when I when I go to high schools and I talk to high school students or or today I talked to um, fifth and sixth graders and um, they they were asking me like, did, when I was younger, like did I always want to be a writer uh, or did I end up going to college? Because I share sort of like the earlier stories and um, you know, I, I love to share with them that where we are, where we start doesn't have to dictate where we end up. And like, I think that's true at any stage in our lives. Um, but I I think that that's really important too is sort of uh, kind of instilling that hope in in people that um, that things are always possible, right? Because I think that's that's the most dangerous thing is like when we when we lose hope and when we just feel like well, what's left, you know?
1: You have become an inspiration for a lot of kids.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I uh, I really appreciate you saying that. I I think sometimes it's. Uh, it's it's difficult sometimes um because it's also very draining to be honest like sharing your story and 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 having to do it um all the time and i think uh i've come to a place now where as a writer and i wrote um i wrote an, an essay for the school library journal um they asked me to write an essay about reading and writing in the Trump era and um what I, what i wrote in that essay is that As a writer now, I am much more interested in writing stories for us. And what I mean by that is that my whole life I've had to explain so much about myself to make people comfortable, right? When somebody asks me where I'm from and I say I'm from Texas, they said, no, but where are you from, from, right? And I Mm -hmm. say, San Antonio. And they're like, no. And I know what they're asking, you know. But I sometimes get annoyed and so I just... Pretend like I don't know what they mean, uh, and then I say, okay, well, I'm from Mexico, and then when I ask them where they're from, and they say, well, I'm from New Jersey, and I'm like, well, where are you from? From, and they're like, <laughs> well, from New Jersey, and I'm like, well, where are your parents from, New Jersey? What about their parents? What about their parents? You know, and I sometimes push back and say, like, why do I have to know where I'm from? But you know, you asking me this question, like you assume that I'm from somewhere else, right? And I have to answer so much. I have to explain so many things. Uh even in my book, there were things that I just wanted to say that uh people reviewing the book would say, Well, you kinda have to explain why because people won't understand it, right? Um, and then I was I was reading about this teacher in Texas who thought that she was sending um private messages to uh to Trump on Twitter, um, but really she was just tweeting things so everybody could see what she was saying. And she was saying things like my school has been overrun by illegals. And I thought I am so much more interested in writing to her students as my audience than trying to change her mind. Like I'm sometimes tired of having to change people's minds. And I just want to talk to other people like me who need encouragement, who need to believe in themselves, who need to know that they're not alone. Uh, And that has been like a big evolution in my writing it's like okay i don't want to explain all the time sometimes there's a place for that and there are stories for that but what i really want to do is like energize the choir as
0: someone said once (laughs) That was L.A.-based writer and immigrant rights advocate Julisa Arce. Julissa is a nationally best-selling author of My Underground American Dream and Someone Like Me. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Time Magazine, CNN, CNBC, Vogue, and other media outlets. Her forthcoming third book, Rejecting Assimilation, is a manifesto against the ways America demands assimilation, yet denies belonging, and a rallying cry to preserve and celebrate our unique cultures, values, and vision to create space to truly be ourselves. Julissa was named one of People in Español's 25 Most Powerful Women of 2017 and in 2018 named Woman of the Year by the City of Los Angeles. Her first book is currently being developed as a television series with producer and actor America Ferrara. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories.
1: More information on 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories can be found on our website. Storyteller.com and the show's Facebook page please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you
0: Immigration Stories podcast is created produced by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link thank you for listening please remember to like and share